it's always a danger to say, do what you love, because that's such a cliched thing. But for the younger people out there that might be consuming this information, sometimes cliches are cliches because they really are life-sustaining truths. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. I'm your host, Taylor Lute. Thank you for tuning in today. Today, our guest is Greg Rand from Renters Warehouse. We're going to talk about the ROI, the return on investment of owning America. We're going to talk about how to select markets to invest in real estate. That's a complicated process, and Greg is an expert in it, and we're going to teach you how to start at a high level and then work your way down to picking individual neighborhoods and blocks and things that you can look for when you're making your investment decisions. This is a fantastic conversation. I hope you enjoy it. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and uh, just enjoy the show. Thanks again. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Taylor. Happy to be here. So you've got some, we were talking before we started recording, got some really interesting ideas about the ROI of owning America. That's right. So let's first define some terms. You've got some definitions here. Let's walk through some of the important terms Yep. as we get started. Sure, absolutely. So ROI is a fun one because ROI is sort of like you can define it any way you like, right? So what the ROI of America to us is from an investment perspective a combination of yield, also known as cash flow, also known as cap rate, right? Net yields being a number. We spent a lot of years working with Wall Street firms, so we've adopted the vernacular of the way the big Wall Street firms that penetrated single-family rental. And so for them, yield is obviously your, your net cash flow divided by the amount of money you invested. So, you know, you buy a $200,000 house, you get a $12,000 a year net income from that house, you've got a 6% yield. That's the first component of ROI. A lot of people who are buying buy-to-hold rental property stop there, and they say things like, well, you know, appreciation is good, but appreciation is just a cherry on top, right? It's just a bonus. Yeah. You can't count on it. I don't buy that. I think everybody that I know that wins in real estate, they thrive on the yield, the cash flow, but they win on the price appreciation long-term, right? And so the combination of those two things gives you ROI, and our method of forecasting price appreciation. The reason why I think a lot of people don't try to is there isn't really a great way like, okay, appreciation rate, what is it? Go ask a thousand realtors what the appreciation rate in their town is and they'd say, it's good. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. So there, there's, you know, what we've done is we have on a county by county basis, what has the appreciation of a single family home been over the last 20 years on average? Okay, it's a blunt instrument, this measurement, right? It's transparent. It's not adjusted for seasonality. It's not adjusted for inflation. It's just a straight up how has the average house or the median priced house gone up or down on an annual basis for the last 20 years? Whatever that number is, the average appreciation rate for the last 20 years, we're using that to forecast the next 20 years. So economists will tell me, well, that's wrong, except for the fact that we've been right. This forecast has been really accurate over the last five years since we've been using it. And the reason is, is that when you take a 20-year history, you've got the whole housing boom, housing bust in there accounted for, right? You've got uh, Democrats, Republicans, wartime, peacetime, good times, bad times, you know, dogs and cats, everything under one. You basically, it's a stress test. The last 20 years has been an interesting stress test of the housing market. 
And however the market you're talking about, whatever county in America you're talking about, however performed over the last 20 years, what you'll see when you see the chart, and we reveal that chart on our website, is you see the way the market rode up during the housing boom, dealt with the housing correction. Sometimes it's like Phoenix, right? (laughs) And then sometimes it's like, you know, Cincinnati, and it's a straight line, but it reveals a trend line. It reveals that that occurrence 10 years ago really was too steep of an incline, a correction decline, and then a fighting its way back to kind of a trend line. So we use that. We use that 20-year average. And so you look around the country and you find that the ROI of America is a nine and a half, <laughs> right? And it arrives there in different ways. Some places have a higher yield and a lower appreciation rate. Some have a higher appreciation rate and a lower yield, but kind of a face value house in this country in most markets around the country ends up landing at around a nine and a half without leverage, without you know doing anything complicated to it. And so our goal is to try to find the 10 and a halfs and the 11s. So where do you find the places where you can get at least that nine and a half? Because for a lot of folks, by the way, nine and a half is fine, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And they say, hell, if I can, if I can do a, I think a house in Charlotte in a good school district is pretty stable. If I can get a stable nine and a half, I'm happy as a clam. But then if we want to get them, you know, if they start getting a little spunky and they want to try to find their 10 and a half and 11s, we look for the pockets where we think it's going to be stronger. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, so there's a lot to unpack there. And you mentioned about appreciation and yield, aka cash flow and, and appreciation being considered by many the you know cherry on the top of the, the ice cream or whatever you want to, however you want to put it. I think part of that is a reaction to the wild appreciation speculation that happened in the last run-up before the recession yep. where sure. people were only buying for speculative appreciation and that can't last. So maybe that's right. a bit of a reaction to that. It's also, I think, a reaction to people just not having a reliable index to measure by. Sure. And the, the indexes that get circulated in the media, you know, the Case-Shiller index said the housing prices went down 0.09%. Are we headed for another plummet? Right. There's a lot of fanning of flames of that. People like to get people hyped up. And so since nobody's come out that I can tell with any kind of a responsible, transparent, common sense way of, of forecasting it and conservative way of forecasting it. Like, I don't want to know that the prices went up six and a half percent or eight percent last year in Charlotte. I'm not using that number. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you show me a three and a quarter over the last 20 years, I can live with using that number. You know, it's more conservative and it accounts for that 8% last year, but it also accounts for the negative 8% that maybe we got in Charlotte back in 2010. Mm, Okay. So another important factor here is I'm certainly no expert on statistics, but I know averages can be very troublesome, especially when it comes to you know, average returns over time and things like that, you know, that right. an average can really wash out all just awful years and then also fantastic years. And personally, I'm trying to do what I can to avoid those awful years primarily. Right. I, I, you know, I'm shooting for the, the fantastic killer years are fanta- are great, but the awful years are the years where you lose everything and, you know, we're doing what we can not to lose everything. So, you know, when you're looking in these markets and you're, in a way, chasing your overall ROI and yield, how are you prioritizing various markets that um, you're looking to the future, but it's not always super accurate to use back 
data from 20 years to move to the future because industries change. I mean, my family's from the steel country in Pennsylvania. Well, right. sorry, the steel business is gone. Right. You know, you could use that. If you're using that 20 year data back in the day, then you just got destroyed. Right. right. So great how are you looking at some of those more like qualitative, still a little bit quantitative, but those industry related factors to maybe take some of the noise out of the data? Yeah, great question. So the first thing is, I think, in terms of 25 years. And so if there's a bad year or two in the middle there, as long as my 25th year is on the upswing or I make my way to recovering, if somebody makes mistakes in Washington or in banking again or whatever, some third party comes along and tampers with our beloved housing market, well, I'm going to ride it out because everything I do, there is no leverage anything has on me that I have to sell at a certain point. So it's all substantial down payments, long-term holds, low-rate debt, and everything else. So this is, this is an accumulation play for me. So that's the first answer is that I've got a very, very long-term threshold. I'm not selling anything probably ever. And so I'll ride out a storm if another one comes. But to your question um, specifically about markets, my favorite thing in the world, uh, being a person with an abundance of common sense and a complete lack of book learning, is watching people and understanding that the demand drivers, the, the value and economic stability and, uh, and future of a single family home is rooted in population growth. All right. It's the reason I love the instrument is that my company used to be called Own America, all right, before Renters Warehouse bought us. Okay. And that gives you an idea of what I think we're doing here. When you're accumulating real estate in this country, you're actually literally buying pieces of it, right? And I like the single family home as the vehicle more than anything else because it's the root instrument through which you can own America. It's tied to population. It's tied to families, growth of population. So the economic trends, the winds that can blow on other commercial asset classes, like I don't know about buying retail these days, you know, because things like, you know, Amazon. So people want to live indoors. They want to live here. They tend to want to keep coming here. So when you think about like, was it Pennsylvania, Ohio, you were talking about where you grew up? Pennsylvania, but it still applies to you know much of Ohio. Right, right. So the situations right. where watching, we call it people watching. Okay, I try to put silly names on important things. People watching is all about where are the people going? Okay, why are they going there? Is that going to continue? So if they're exiting, so for example, you have a manufacturing job base in the upper Midwest that eroded over time and then it accelerated over the last 30 years, Right. And so Western PA was in a tough spot. And so you could have read those tea leaves and said, all right, so the job base is eroding. Let me find a place where the job base is growing. You know, you look at Texas, you look at the Carolinas, you look at Tennessee. There are definite indicators that because of the cost of living, because of the deals the government is willing to give the companies, because of the quality of life, because of the low tax situation, the attractive business situation, the, it's a glacial move. So you have time to read it. You don't have to sprint to the front of the line. You can watch the way these moves shift and where the people are going, if it's for opportunity and employment, and the reason they're going there is not short-term. They didn't discover gold and the gold might run out. They're literally moving there, <laughs> and the shifts are very, very, very long-term and sustainable. That's the kind of trend you want to get out in front of. But then Western PA is so interesting. In parts of Ohio, that manufacturing base – now for, for Well, better at Western PA, the energy industry moved in. So there were signals a few years back that, you know, Pittsburgh, which had been kind of hurt, you know, using the term lightly, 
have been harmed pretty dramatically by that erosion of manufacturing, all of a sudden discovered that shale. And the government was friendly towards it, where the government of New York has not been. So Western New York not participating in the fracking trend. Western PA is the industry of fracking set up shop in Western PA, permanent installations, right? So New York missed out on it because like it's not like, okay, fine, we'll we'll play it now. If a new governor came in and said, okay, we'll play ball with the shell fracking, it's too late because 100-year decisions got made to install energy industry infrastructure in Western PA and the jobs have gone through the roof. And Western Pennsylvania is on the mend now. And so there's a great example of where one trend, one mega trend on the downside came about. And if you saw it coming, you might have wanted to get it out of the way of it. But as soon as a new mega trend came in, there was a massive opportunity in Pennsylvania to triple down and accumulate during that downtime. And it, it would have had nothing to do with buying a distressed house, right? Um, nothing I talked about just now was finding a deal. If the market went down overall and then the market came up overall, the timing of a deal like that is to recognize those shifting plates of earth and then start accumulating, in my opinion, the nicest houses you can in the best locations you can in the best condition you can because you don't have to break your back dealing with repair risk. You can actually buy something in good condition because you're buying the deal you see is time and place. Pittsburgh suburbs on the front end of an energy trend, on the tail end of a manufacturing erosion trend. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. My question then becomes, you know, it may be shifting away from Pennsylvania a little bit, but in a but to stick along the energy industry lines, you know, a few years ago, we had a massive drop in the price of crude oil yep. and areas that had invested heavily or the, the economy had boomed in tar sands, specifically in Canada and the Dakotas really got hammered. Their real estate just, just got absolutely destroyed because the price of oil fell to, I don't know what it remembers, 30 bucks a a barrel or something like right. that from $130 a barrel, speaking super round numbers. I don't remember specifically anymore. And that price still hasn't recovered. And, um, you know, a lot of those areas haven't gotten back to where they were because the economics of that industry don't work anymore right. at these, you know, low prices of oil. And gas is still pretty cheap, honestly. So diversification of industries, like where do you go there? That's it. Exactly. So when you have the Dakotas, I'm sure they're beautiful. I say I'm sure because even though I've been everywhere, I haven't been there. Okay. <laughs> because, I'm, because I'm not in that industry. There's only one industry driving, to my knowledge, driving that. So if you have a market that has all of its eggs in one basket, you're vulnerable. Right. A twist on that that's really interesting, I think, is Houston. Right. Houston, during that same period of time, a lot of people called Houston down out. Like it's over in Houston mm-hmm. because the city is too overly dependent on the energy industry and it's in trouble. The difference was is that Houston had begun diversifying 10 years earlier. Houston's economy is not like the Dakota's economy that is, you know, 75 or 80% dependent on that industry. It is actually a sliver of the economy in Houston is actually the energy industry. And we recently did a study on Houston because it's really funny. Every time Oil prices and gas prices go down. The Houston Chronicle runs a headline saying, it's over, (laughs) like it's over, right? Yeah. And people buy into that. 
And then, of course, there was a horrible hurricane. And guess what? It's over again, right? The housing market's never going to recover because of the hurricane. They have this way of wanting, for some reason, to predict nonsense like that. But here's what we discovered down there, is that precisely because the price of gas and the price of oil have gone down, ExxonMobil, the giant in the industry, consolidated a bunch of their facilities from around Houston, from around the country. So there's this area west of Houston, you know, the energy sector, I think, uh, is it called the Energy Mile, something like that? I forget the exact name. It's early. Within the pain of energy industry contraction, ExxonMobil built a 10,000 employee campus in an area called the Woodlands, which is northwest of the city of Houston, Mm. right? So I looked at Houston and said, okay, so the energy industry is having trouble, but where's the gem anyway? Because I always believe there's going to be one if the economy is diverse enough in the market. And I found two things. One, I found that that, that because of the contraction of the industry, ExxonMobil wanted to save money. They saved money by consolidating a bunch of offices into one big, massive 10,000 employee corporate campus. And guess what happened to the real estate values in the woodlands? Right? They went up. Shut up. Because of that demand. But it's funny how inherent in the bad story was a pearl, right? So you didn't want to buy over where they were extracting the jobs. That would have been a bad idea. But if you knew where they were going and it's still happening, and there were more pockets. There was another story in Houston where it was completely unrelated. There's an area called Valley Ranch that I learned about that for 100 years was a dry town. You couldn't buy a beer with your steak, right? They changed it. It's It's really funny. You like this. They were trying to change it for a decade, but they were pounding their fists saying something probably like, we want our beers, like we, we want to we wanna have alcohol in town. <laughs> and everyone's saying, no, we're not doing that. Then they came up with the restaurant initiative. That's different, right? The restaurant initiative. Mm. Can't have a good restaurant. You're not going to have a foodie culture if you can't sell wine, right, and beer and whiskey. No way. So yep. they spun it differently. The right combination of public and private attitudes kind of combined, and they approved it. And so now this is area that, wouldn't you know, this area had depressed real estate values because it wasn't that attractive of a place to live because there were no decent restaurants there. Something as simple as that, a quality of life factor was out of whack. Uh, they changed that, and the real estate values have gone up at double-digit uh, appreciation over the last couple of years purely because of the fact that you can now you know, get a glass of wine with your dinner. So what degree of granularity to their market knowledge should most real estate investors have? And especially when you're picking a market to invest in, I mean, it's, you have to start at a high level and then, you know, work your way down and get more detailed. When do you decide to go from that high level to more, more of a detailed level when you start subscribing to the local newspaper and stuff like that, you know? How does that, uh, that process all work? Because we all only have 24 hours in the day. Yeah, uh, great question. So you start off macro, as you said, right? And you start identifying. So for a lot of people, the reason why I talked about Houston is there are people who live in Houston. So Houston is the right place to invest by virtue of the fact that they live there, right? So if they sure. want to look around the country, they can, but there's definitely an advantage to being within the proximity of your investment portfolio because your ears to the ground anyway. You're raising your kids there. You live there. You know if something's going wrong, right? You don't have to hear about a hurricane coming. You know what's coming. And so sometimes the market, the macro market that you choose kind of chooses you. But even so, if that's not the case, if you look around the country and you find, you know, I grew up in New York. You can't get a, a cash flow in New York on a single family home. 
So what am I going to do? I like the East Coast because I went on vacation down to Florida as a kid growing up. And so I have familiarity of the West Coast of Florida. So you find a, a primary market where you live. You find a secondary market in, in your life, I mean, a, a secondary to your, where you went to college, where you have relatives, someplace where you have a degree of familiarity. And then, of course, you can go anyplace else you want. Starting macro, talking about those larger employment population migration trends. Then you get granular, as you said. And so there, I like doing things like setting a Google alert. Town of Belmont approves. City of Charlotte approves. Mm. Okay. Town of Mooresville approves. These are all towns around the Charlotte area where I now live. Okay. I pay pretty close attention, but one of the reasons why I know what's going on is that I get a Google alert in the morning saying they approved the budget in Charlotte. They approved the expansion of the light rail system in Charlotte, right? That's a great little tip is you just put the name of the geography or the name of the the municipal entity, you know, city of Detroit approves. When the city of Detroit approves another GM factory expansion, you want to know that morning that it got announced, right? So wherever you're going, you put your finger to the pulse. I would show up on the ground. I do a lot of 30,000 foot view analysis and then I go in, okay, and put boots on the ground. We actually do a YouTube show called Real Estate Road Trip where I actually go in with a camera crew and drive around and eyeball all the things that I want to confirm. And you'll learn a lot by just driving around and applying your common sense. But then you look for things like where I'm investing right now. I just bought two houses. I'm going to buy two more by the end of uh, August. Is it a place where a light rail train station, commuter rail train station just got approved? Nice. Yeah, right? So people are going to be able to commute 13 minutes to downtown Charlotte to where the Bank of America Tower is. And there's no traffic on those train tracks, right? So it's a winner. But the town is only starting to pop as a result of it because the people who usually buy single family homes are going to live in it. And you don't care about what's going to happen in 2022 on a house you're buying today. So you're not willing to overpay for a house today because of a train station coming in in 2022. I'm willing to outbid you, though, because I'm willing to rent it for market value today, knowing that both market value and market rent are going to pop in 2022 because the houses I'm buying are just about walkable to that train station location. So that's to answer your question. Start off macro. I like the southeast. I like North Carolina. I like Charlotte. Inside of Charlotte, I want to find the parts of Charlotte that are a little bit late to the game, late developers, late bloomers, suburbs of Charlotte that are later bloomers. I can see the early bloomers and what happened to those suburbs. I found a late bloomer. Then I found a late bloomer with a train station coming in for commuters, and I'm loading up in that spot. Okay. So, I mean, there's a lot of work there, but it's it's worth putting that work in for investors. You should definitely know the market that you're investing in and understand it very well. And I definitely appreciate you know all the work that you've done for your own investments. But here at Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals, once we buy a piece of property as an investment, we don't want to be buying ourselves yet another job that we have to you know be managing all the time, everything like that. So once you personally have selected a market or for you know, your clients and, and whatnot, how do you move from that market selection, this area I want to invest in, to acquiring property? What kind of properties do you target? All that good stuff to make sure you have a reasonably passive investment. I mean, it's going to take some time. No matter what you're buying, it's going to take some time. But so you're not, you know, going and fixing toilets and, you know, dealing with your tenants, all that. What do you recommend? Yeah, I buy the nicest house that I possibly can in the best condition I can. 
And then I have a professional, I mean, I work for the largest property management company in the country. So I believe in professional third-party property management and I hire my own company. So I hire a property manager to do the dirty work after the fact, right? That's the reason why I shaped my own personal strategy around picking the winners from the standpoint of where and when I invest. And then like the joke that I have that I always tell is my hands are so soft Taylor, that when I hold a baby, I get chafed. Okay. So I'm not dealing with any repairs, none, zero. Okay. And in like the two houses I just bought, the people that owned them before me got some economics off the table from me because they made them, they fixed them up. One was a homeowner, one was an investor. They got the economics of making these things perfect for me. I paid market value. I paid asking price the morning the houses came on the market. Some investors would say, what a moron, but not your listeners because your listeners are interested in passive income, and I need this to be passive also. So the research part that I talked about five minutes ago, that to me is a hobby. Like I really enjoy that. The last professional athlete that I can name for you is like Tom Brady, and before that is like Michael Jordan. I, I don't have interests like that. I don't know. I don't follow things like that. I follow this. I enjoy doing this research. I enjoy picking the winners. I have fantasy portfolios. I don't have fantasy football teams, all right? So that part is not a drain on my time or brain power because I like it. The actual execution of, of buying, nicest house I can, best place I can, quality third-party property manager doing the dirty work, and patience in my strategy that I know that nothing is going to happen in the next six months or a year or two years. It's going to light my world on fire. It's what's going to happen over the next 15 or 20 that hmm. is. Yeah, it's interesting. I think you make a, a very good point there because you know, we, we this is passive wealth strategies, but no matter what you do, nothing's free. It's going to take some time. and. You have to dedicate time to this in some way. You're going to have to be dedicated to it, you know, whether it's not watching a particular sport. I mean, personally, I don't care about sports myself either. So, you know, I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You have to have some joy in this process because it takes a lot of commitment to succeed. Yeah. You know what? I went down when I went to these two houses I just bought, they, they both came about at the same time. So I had appliances being installed, and when I went to one of them, I found that the cleaning crew didn't clean the cobwebs in the garage, right? So I brought a vacuum back with me, and I vacuumed the garage, and I started sweating because it was hot out. My wife said, hey, look, you're sweating. Hey, look, you're, you're working and sweating. I pulled the camera out, did an Instagram video of me sweating, going like, okay, this one's done, as if, as if I did anything. You know, I vacuumed <laughs> four cobwebs, but I was drenched in sweat, and I'm taking the camera – so I enjoyed for the moment pretending that I was a rough-handed, you know, real estate entrepreneur getting my hands in the grit, but I'm really not that way. I'm brain on, hands off. Okay, so I like to be very engaged in the strategic execution and planning and execution and then completely hands off after the property goes into service and I pay a quality company to handle the details for me and they've done a good job of that. And so I just bake their costs into my financials. And it's, you know, I don't think twice about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's that uh, classic saying, you know, the, and, the, and the book, the e-myth, the entrepreneurship is not working in your business. It's working on your business. You don't be the guy vacuuming the cobwebs all the time. Okay. Occasionally, maybe you do One it time. just for <laughs> just fun. Once. Right. But you should be the guy setting up systems to, you know, you can pay people to vacuum cobwebs and you want to have that system all handling itself. You want to be able to step back and let it run itself. That is investing. That is entrepreneurship. That is being a business owner. And especially for 
those of us like me who, you know, we have jobs, we have things that take up our day. I mean, you and I both got up early and, uh, you know, we're talking here and that's, yep. you know, it takes that extra commitment and it takes setting up systems so that it can run in the background while you're busy doing other things and making right. your income and all that good stuff. And it works well. I mean, that's the beauty of it is that you make a commitment to a house. You're not going to wake up at two in the morning and find out that something happened in some company you own stock in. And by breakfast time or, you know, by a half hour after the stock market opens, you've lost 15%, 20% of the value of your investment. Real estate doesn't go crazy like that. It's slow and lumbering and glacial in the way that it performs. And so I don't feel concerned about turning my back on it for some period of time because, you know, what's going to happen? I have a lease. I have a tenant. It's in a good place. If it burns down, I have insurance. And so I don't have any kind of agitation or anxiety around any short-term occurrences because even if we wind up having a problem at some point in the next 10 years and we have another housing crisis and my values go down, my yield is going to sustain me. And this is, you know, I'm 50 and this is for 70. So I really have plenty of time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just turned uh, 30 last week and I'm, I'm thinking that long-term, that 20, 25 years like you've been talking about. So how it was the big three O? Did it hurt you? Did it like cause any kind of pain in your life? The zeros tend to mess people up. I don't know. Uh, you know, other people. Maybe I'll get there. Maybe I'm in <laughs> denial. But no, I feel great. I mean, I'm I'm happy with what I'm doing, and real estate is very satisfying. Hosting this podcast is a lot of fun. It takes a lot of work, but you have to be doing something with your time, and it's better than you know sitting around all evening and doing nothing. Like I said, I don't like sports anyway. I'm not going to be the guy sitting around on a you know Sunday night watching the football game because I don't care. Yeah, Game of Thrones is over. Game of Thrones is over. So well, what else yeah, are you do? Season you eight do was terrible anyway. So <laughs> it was all it was a waste of time. I don't know how to fly a dragon, but I could have done a better job in that beginning episode flying those Absolutely. dragons. Absolutely. You know, I mean, if I mean, they should the have called us to consult on the plot, but anyway, that's. <laughs> not here. But you know, you being thirty and me being fifty, we you can see a snapshot of twenty years between our ages. Here's your mindset doesn't change that much. You get more experience, but you're still the same person. But what you'll be capable of doing, what I have a feeling you're going to do over the next 20 years, is you're going to be in a position when you're sitting here my age with an abundance in your life, financial abundance, because what's going to happen over the next 20 years in real estate is pretty much it's going to go up. Even if it goes down someplace in the middle, which I don't anticipate, shit happens, stuff happens. <laughs> but you'll be a young man, such as it is, at 50, with a substantial position in American real estate, which means you'll be able to do anything you want in the next 20 years after that, because you won't have to work. You'll be able to do anything you want. You'll be able to fund any causes you care about. You'll be able to do anything. Your freedom level will be off the charts because of what you do in the next 20 years. Absolutely. That opportunity is out there for everybody. I mean, like you were, we talked about the front of the show. I mean, that yield aspect in in your parlance, cash flow, and the way I like to put it is we're buying for cash flow first, and then that appreciation is icing on the cake, so to speak, and the way I like to think about it, but it's certainly part of a blended return in the way that you've been talking about part of your overall ROI. So definitely appreciate that. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. So the first question, what is the best investment you ever made? That one is actually easy because my daughter is graduating high school next year and I made an investment when she was an infant. And I had this idea that at the point where she was a baby, I had 18 years to mature the kid. I made an investment in a condo in Newburgh, New York, 
that I figured if I have 18 years to mature the investment at the same time, the reason why it's the best investment, it wasn't the best ROI I ever had, but because I learned something where anchoring an investment, a specific property to a specific and important long-term objective, educating my daughter, that I rode the whole housing boom and housing bust without breaking a sweat because I didn't care what it was worth in 2007, 8, 9. I cared what it was going to be worth in 2020, and now 2020 is coming. And I've got this mm-hmm. condo. It's been cash flowing the whole time. It is her college fund. So I made a commitment when she was a baby, and now she's not a baby anymore, and I never sweated her college funding because I had that little engine up there just chugging along quietly chugging along, building equity, and I was reinvesting the cash flow. Uh, And I actually wrote a book back in 2010 called Crash Boom during the middle of this housing crisis to remind everybody, crash boom, don't forget what we know about this market. And one of the chapters was have a kid buy a condo. And the concept was very much, very simple. Like my hands were full. I had this baby. It was my first, our first one. I had no idea what I was doing. I couldn't afford to buy anything that required any hands-on. So I actually bought a condo, the dreaded condo, right? Because I wanted something brand new. I wanted something completely hands-off. And I just wanted to plant a seed that would grow while the kid grew. And the plan worked great. And so that was my favorite investment because it was my most important investment linked to my daughter's education. I love it. That's great. I mean, uh, it has a purpose behind it. You know, personally, I own a condo. It's a personal residence. But it's also as an investment because it will cash flow once I move out. That's the whole point is, you know, acquiring these properties. And I like that you've also, you had that acceptance that, all right, this future is coming. It's going to be real. Eventually, she's going to want to go to college. I need to get ready for it. I need to have that long-term vision. I think that's why, uh, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, I think that's why turning 30, it hasn't really freaked me out yet, at least, because like I'd rather turn 30 someday than never turn 30, because those are the two options. (laughs) There's, There's a good mindset attitude. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So you might as well have fun with it. And I'd rather turn 50 someday than never turn 50. So, you know, whatever. That's just how it works. Love it. Great. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment you ever made? Okay. I bought a second home. This is also an easy one. Uh, I don't dwell on mistakes, but this one still gnaws at me. I bought a second home in a place called Seabrook Island, South Carolina. Around the same time also, I was having a good run when this kid was born. So we got this this vacation Mm. place. Got this vacation place, and it was the calculations were right. Okay, Seabrook Island is sitting right next to Kiowa Island. Kiowa Islands is forty percent more expensive. This is off the coast of Charleston. Okay, so great market. Charleston is a phenomenal city. The coastline are phenomenal vacation areas, and here was this sort of ugly stepsister island that was right next to the beautiful stepsister. Right, so it was cheaper for no good reason. Except that it had these facilities, pool areas, golf courses that were all dinged up, biting flies flying around the pool area. And then they made a plan to fund a total renovation of all the facilities. And I said, okay, I'm going to buy here now because what's going to happen is that this island is going to catch up to that island. It doesn't have to surpass it. But once they fix, once they kill the biting flies, once they fix the golf courses, once they actually fix the beach club, when they do all this renovation, this place is going to be pristine. And it's going to close that gap rapidly. And so that was my calculation. Here's what I missed. The island is governed by a board of directors that did not want anybody from the north ever finding out about this place. Okay. So they were a bunch of grumpy old coots that wouldn't allow the listings to be on Zillow. 
and other websites when they were for sale. Oh, they man. wouldn't allow, they built a wedding facility and then discouraged weddings from being held there. They built a wedding facility and then wouldn't allow any short-term rentals for the people that came to the weddings. So they actually put obstacles in the way. After they funded this massive renovation, they actually put all their energy into keeping their best kept secret a secret. And my property value was flat and even came down during a period of time when Charleston overall was going up at 5 to 6% a year. My property was going slightly down every year. So what I learned from that one is show up at a planning board meeting. Before you make an investment and start picking a town, show up. If you've got a planning board that is there because they like controlling other people's life, they're just one of those types, right? And if they have too much power, maybe they'll pass rules later on. They're going to wind up getting in your way of doing your renovation because all of a sudden your house is a historic site and you can't rip off the siding and put something new on. So pay attention to the attitudes of people that have power locally because they could actually get in your way. Mm, yeah, mostly uh, retirees with nothing else to do in a vacation market. <laughs> I <laughs> might be obstructionist. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Nice. Uh, and that kind of leads us into the last question. It's my favorite one. What is the most important lesson you've learned in investing? You know, I guess it's, I decided to put my career and my investment strategy kind of side by side in parallel lanes. Okay. So the lesson that I learned about learning the craft and embedding my profession in it at the same time wound up being a really good call because I've had now, you know, over time realizing that what I really loved, I mean, I love the people watching component. I didn't actually love the real estate component as much. I've come to love the real estate component, but I loved the, the fact that I learned about myself in my twenties that, Hey, I have this ridiculous amount of common sense. Okay. And again, I can't even read, you know, the instructions on a medicine bottle because I don't have the attention span for that, but I can, I can do this all day. Right. I can talk about my passion. So the important lesson was really pile on into the thing that I really like. I don't spend any energy or any time doing anything I don't want to do, which sounds selfish to some people, like maybe my wife, like I don't do anything I don't want to do. I'm at the point now where I actually don't do anything I don't want to do. <laughs> nice, nice. Because I've got myself embedded in things that I do love to do. And for the things that I actually don't feel like doing, like blowing the driveway off with the, the leaf blower, that's small price to pay to be able to be surrounded where my job and my business and my life and my hobbies and my investment strategy are all kind of pulled together all in the avenue that I enjoy and I'm passionate about. And so, you know, that lesson of going all in on what you really love made a lot of sense to me. Nice. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I think, of, you know, generally in life, you know, we get a lot more fulfillment when we do things we enjoy doing. And, and I've heard that from many successful real estate entrepreneurs and investors that I, you know, I don't even like real estate. I'm just here because it fits with a business system that I like to run. And real estate is just a facet of that, or it's just the way we apply this business and I'm good at it and I enjoy it. So I end up making money, but I don't actually care about the real estate aspect of it. I hear that from a lot of successful investors. Yeah, yeah, there's spiders in garages out there. I'm not a big fan of spiders, but you know, it sounds cliche. There's always a danger to say, do what you love, because that's such a cliched thing. But for the younger people out there that might be consuming this information, sometimes cliches are cliches because they really are life-sustaining truths. And 
I have a really fun time day by day. I mean, I, I got up this morning excited about this because the first thing I got to do this morning, where this is early, right? The first thing I got to do was talk about my passion with somebody who I just got to know. It's really fun to be able to spend your time. Like, I don't feel like I have a job. And so again, cliched, but also totally true. So, you know, pay attention to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm right there with you. I mean, it's early for us. It's before the business day, so to speak, has started. And, uh, you know, once we're off the line here, I'm going to go about my day, get to my uh, W-2, which I also enjoy and, you know, have fun doing that too and play full out. But it's a lucky position to be in, but it takes time and effort and trying things to find those things that you enjoy for sure. Yep. Yep. Great. Well, I really enjoyed the conversation. Where can folks learn more? Where can they get in touch with you? All that good stuff. Sure. Yeah. So well, my email address is grand at renterswarehouse.com. Our website is renterswarehouse.com. Renters Warehouse is the largest single family property management company in the country. They bought my company in January. My company was called Own America. We were an online platform for researching and acquiring single family rental properties. And so now we've combined those companies and we're coming out literally this month with version 2.0 of Renters Warehouse, which is a property management company upon which we've built a real estate brokerage company, upon which we're launching the greatest real estate investment portal ever made. You know, so says I. And so, yeah, so check us out, renterswarehouse.com or, you know, GS Rands on Instagram, GS Rand on Facebook, YouTube, all that fun stuff. Great. And for the listeners out there, when we're recording this, by the time this goes live, the website will be out there live. So when you're listening to this, the website is live. So Great. it's out there. So awesome. Thanks. Great. Well, thank you for joining us once again. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Thanks to my Facebook friends, which we're live streaming this on Facebook, many of whom uh, uh, tuned in and uh, gave a shout out to Matt Faircloth there. He commented on the video. So uh, he was watching as well. So that was a fun little uh, little thing here to sit and enjoy. If you're enjoying Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's an enormous help helps other people find out about the show. If you know someone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their life, please share the show with them. That would be a, an enormous help to everyone as well. Bring them into our little tribe here that we're forming. Hope you have a great day, a great rest of your week, and we will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. 